BMO hints at broad layoffs as revenue growth lags behind costs. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about Chicago-area home prices, which have stayed more solid than those in most major U.S. cities in recent months. But the long-term trend since the dawn of the pandemic has been weaker locally than in most other cities. The still rising prices, and at a pretty good clip, are Tampa, Miami, Charlotte, That has a lot to do with that drain of people still uh, because of COVID and remote work to warmer, more pleasant locations. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, June 1st. Secure your business accounts and start earning more with a Wintrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you get up to 15 times the standard FDIC personal protection. That's right, 15 times the protection with the liability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local Wintrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Radkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. How's it going? Great, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thanks. So as usual, lots of cool things to dive into this week. So let's start by talking about Chicago area home prices. There's a a couple of things to underline here. So they've stayed more solid than those in most major cities lately, but the long-term trend since the dawn of the pandemic has been weaker here than in most cities. So kind of two things that seem like they're competing, but actually all part of the same narrative. Tell me about this. Yes, exactly. That's it. Part of the same narrative. So this is uh, based on the Case-Shiller Index, which, as you know, I devour once a month. It's it's what I live for the last Tuesday of the month when the Case-Shiller data arrives, because I can use that as a measuring stick. How does Chicago's market compare to those in other big U.S. cities? And, and this actually does matter. It's not just numbers on paper, because um, this has a lot to do with how, with a, it's a, a measure of how our general economy is doing in Chicago compared to other cities. It's also a question of how your household wealth is doing if you're a homeowner. So uh, it's not just, you know, numbers. It actually does sort of tell us something about Chicago's place in the world. And what we're seeing in with the latest uh, Case-Shiller data, so it came out in late May, but it's for March. This is a national index. March 2023 is three years after March 2020, which is when we saw the COVID uh, turn in America. And so one of the things I did is look at how we're doing long term. Um, I think I've just jumped ahead of how we're doing short term, but the long term informs the short term. So let's go that way. I compared the March 2023 data to March 2020 and found that home prices in Chicago in that three year period, uh, according to the Case Shiller Index, are up 28 percent. Okay. Of the 20 major cities that the Case-Shiller Index tracks, only three have had shallower home price growth over the course of those three years, San Francisco, Minneapolis, and Washington, D.C. And San Francisco is one of those strange cases because it was, you know, it was going like wildfire prior to COVID. And then as we read often, a lot of people left 
San Francisco, in part because I've got a tech job and don't have to be there, and in part because San Francisco had become so very expensive. Anyway, three years after March 2020, in March 2023, our home prices were up 28%, nationally up 36%, so we're behind the nation, um, and we're way behind places like Phoenix, uh, even though prices have been falling for months and months during the boom, their prices were going up more than 30%, um, and it seemed like it was just running away from people. And it did, but it's been being pulled back. They've had price drops for months. Um, nevertheless, their home values are still up 44% from March 2020, so even with the declines. Um, and the places that are farthest above their March 2020 um, home values are all on the all in the southeast, Tampa, Miami, and Charlotte. So you and I talked about this, and Kate, the Case Shiller analysts now talk about it. And the way they describe it is: the farther west you go, the weaker the prices. the The real the falling prices are Seattle, San Francisco, San Diego. The still rising prices, and at a pretty good clip, are Tampa, Miami, Charlotte. That has a lot to do with that drain of people still. Uh, because of COVID and remote work to warmer, more pleasant locations um, and affordable because, uh, you know, LA is a warm, pleasant place, but it's not as affordable as Tampa, Miami, Charlotte. Um, so we're behind the nation and behind most big cities, behind, as I said, um, 16 other cities on price growth over the past three years. However, when you just look at the March 2023 versus March 2022, that's where we look really good. Our home prices were up uh, in March 4% from March 2022, according to the Case-Shiller Index, nationwide up 0.7%. So we're up more than five times that pace. And you remember when you and I used to sit here month after month and I'd say, yeah, we're running for 19 months in a row. We ran at about half the pace of national prices. Now we're running higher than national prices that has a uh, price growth that has a lot to do with all those cities that are it has primarily to do with all those cities that are declining um, not only is that four percent increase in march better than the one in february which was 3.6 percent which reverses what we had been seeing was month after month for eight months um, each month uh, prices would grow by at least one percentage point less than the one before which it was really sort of seeing the air come out of those prices. Not only does this reverse that from 3.6% in February to 4% in March, but it's in the face of more and more cities showing declines. Again, we're showing an increase um, in that March data. There were 10 cities where prices were down from the year before. A month earlier, there were eight. A month before that, there were four. So the number of cities with prices declining is growing, and we're not in that group, and we may not get to uh, being in that group. Right. Does this begin to tell a story of what the rest of the year might look like or too soon to tell? Might be too soon to tell. It is spring now and the real estate market is always way better in spring than any other part of the year. Yeah. Um, so it may be that that 3.6% in February is the lowest, but there also, you know, there's a lot of this year left to play out. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of adjusting to interest rates and everything else. But as we talked about last week with the um, a different set of data from Illinois Realtors, inventory, the inventory of homes for sale is so low that people are having to pay more and that may keep our prices aloft. Um, we'll see. Uh, so far, it's been pretty good. We, 
Again, our prices have been pretty resilient because one thing to keep in mind is prices being up 4%, you know, oh, okay, great. But that's on top of the prices, the big price growth of a year and two years ago, which is to say hours are still rising. Great if you're a home seller or a homeowner looking at your the amount of equity you have. Not so great if you're a buyer, but these increases are far lower than what we were seeing last year and the year before. Sure, sure. Well, we'll have to revisit this. I think that'll be interesting to kind of see how the, the rest of the year plays out. It seems like it's kind of a recalibration year. Recalibration is a really good term. Yeah. And I think I think some of those places, uh, the places like Seattle, Phoenix, where prices are coming down so much, they're having to recalibrate in a very different way than we are. I mean, you know, I, I was planning to sell this year. My buddy got X. I thought I'd get X plus 10. Actually, I'm getting X minus four. That makes a big difference in whether I sell and what I move to, et cetera, while we're not having to make quite those same calculations. All right. So let's get into some houses. Talk to me about this house in Hyde Park with a whole lot of history attached to it. Yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, Still has not been demolished, but a demolition permit was issued in mid-May. Um, one of one of our my newsroom colleagues, Steve Daniels, lives nearby, and he walks by and lets me know whether it's been demolished um, because uh, that is pending. That sword is hanging over this house in Hyde Park, built in 1894. Tons of history will describe, but sold in January for $1.4 million, and a demolition permit was issued in mid-May. Uh, the buyer would the buyer is a, a a building firm that would not return my calls. The real estate agent who represented the buyer would not return my calls. I don't know what they're going to build there, but they do have a demolition permit, and you know you only do that in order to build something new on a residential site. It's a big lot. It's thirty six by one seventy five. The standard in Chicago is twenty five by one seventy five, although generally bigger in Hyde Park, but citywide it's twenty five by one twenty five. Um, and it's an interesting house because when you look at the exterior, you think, oh, wow, that, that's actually pretty stately. Inside, which I've only seen through listing photos, and so has the historian who dug up a lot of, the architectural historian who dug up a lot of this information, Andrew Elders, he also has only seen listing photos. We have not been inside, but beautiful old stair, I mean, it looks like 1894, beautiful old staircase, big fireplace, lots of wainscoting. Um, some rundown pieces. The kitchen clearly dates to decades ago in the photos. There's a lot of damaged plaster and ceilings that look like they've been patched. Um, but Andrew Elders said, and I'm inclined to agree, it is a house that could be rehabbed. This this builder is not rehabbing it, is tearing it down. And and that's it's sort of sad. It was in one family's hands for at least 80 years. I'm not sure when they bought it, but they bought, but they were there by 1942. That was the family of James Lee Kate, professor at the University of Chicago, military veteran. And so they lived there by 1942. In in the early 1950s, he writes to Harry Truman, the president, and says- As one does. As one does. Yeah. You know, he's a professor, (laughs) a veteran. He's looking at some of the history of the decision to drop the atomic bombs on Japan And he thinks he has detected sort of a flaw in the timing. Um, He thinks that Japan, uh, that the decision to be to drop the bombs was made before Japan had the chance to to surrender um, is basically what it comes down to. So he writes to Truman and says, and says, essentially, if I'm right, you guys really rushed to pull that trigger. 
Wow. Um, which is a very interesting sort of a question. And Truman writes back, there's this long letter. I read it. We linked to it in the story. But basically, Truman said, no, they were given a chance to surrender. And by dropping these bombs, we saved lives. We ended the war. So Truman, in a letter to the a homeowner in this home, living in this home at the time, defends the decision to drop these atomic bombs in Japan uh, at the end of World War II. Uh, James Lee Kate uh, and his wife, whose name is escaping me now, left it to their daughter. And uh, she died a few years ago, and it's her heirs who just sold it. She was also really interesting. She's a sort of a patron, a, um, a funder of um, auto and motorcycle racing, but she never drove. She had the she oh, like supporting uh, race car drivers, but she's not. A, but she doesn't drive. Um, she had car repair shops in on the south side, and she also was the oldest woman in Illinois to become an attorney. Really interesting woman. Um, however, the house by the time she died was in pretty bad shape. Again, it had been in the family's hands for about 80 years. And two other people who are interesting connected to this house, there are others, but the original architect, DeWitt Taylor, this is something I only know from that historian I mentioned, Andrew Elders, designed this house. So this is built in 1894. In the 1890s, early 1900s, he designs a few other very substantial houses on the south side. Some of the addresses are, I think, are linked in the story, but um, really big, beautiful houses like this one. But then by 1909, he's put in an asylum. Uh, he was claiming to be David, the son of God, and his wife testified against him and so did others. And he ended up put in an asylum. So here's this promising young architect studied under the same person Frank Lloyd Wright studied under, um, Joseph Lyman Silsby, and he succumbs to mental illness. Wow. That's one of the people attached. The original owner, this guy's so interesting. Hugo von Hofsten. Great name. Comes from a Danish, a noble family in, in uh, Denmark. Centuries of nobility. He moves here. He's, he moves first to New York. He's a painter, an artist, um, builds this house. Uh, so obviously not living on a painter's income. Sure, right. Living on the fact that I'm a Danish noble. Uh, and he became the official landscape painter of the Cook County Forest Preserves. How interesting. Yeah. At a time when, you know, that's how you would... When have, that was a job, right? <laughs> yeah, that was a job. That's how you'd depict our forest preserves. So those are all the... So James Lee Kate, his daughter, uh, the painter, the architect, all these people are attached, but this house is being demolished. Layers and layers and layers of history attached to this house. Yeah, really. And and of course, you know, uh, we, we live in a private property country, the builders, the builders who bought it, have the right to tear it down. They got a, um, a demolition permit. The house had no landmark protection of any kind. Um, but it's still sorry. I'm sorry to see something like this go. Yeah, I, I mean, it's always kind of sad when we see a, a some historic property go, but especially when there's all these cool stories attached to it, because it, it's different when it's like the site of this. You know, when the new one is built, it'll be like the site of this house had all this stuff happen, which is just not the same as this house. This is where this happened. It happened in that house. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, I imagine James Kate reading this letter from Harry Truman. He might have read it in his office at the university, but I imagine him reading it here at this house and reading, you know, the president of the United States defending the decision to drop bombs that killed hundreds of thousands of people 
And he may have been, you know, sitting in the kitchen of that house. Well, I feel like if you write... When he read the letter. If you write a letter to the President of the United States and the President of the United States writes you back, at the very least, you're going to talk about that at home. That's that's a topic of conversation at dinner, <laughs> right? I would think, yeah, that's so right. So at the very least, it came up. How was the weather? Well, I got a letter from Harry Truman. <laughs> How was your day? <laughs> the President reached out, whatever. We disagree. Agree to disagree on a point. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Exactly. Interesting. Well, we'll have to check in about this house and see how uh, what happens on that site and and uh, the demolition plan and all that. All right. Uh, let's. I ne- would like to know what's being built. Yeah. We'll right. find out. Yeah. Especially like in Hyde Park, there, you said the word stately, and that's exactly right. There are so many of these just beautiful stately homes there, and so it'll be interesting to see what what goes in that spot. I think so. So tell me about this driving tour uh, where people can see mid-century homes. This is a really interesting event. This is on June 24th. Tickets are $75. There's a link in our story to where you can buy the tickets. Um, it's co-sponsored by the Edith Farnsworth House and by the Foundation for uh, the Preservation of Flossmore History. You can also find tickets on their sites. Um, this, the South Suburbs uh, were booming after World War II in large part because steel and all the associated industries were booming both in Northwest Indiana and on our side of the state line. So a lot of population is moving down there, moving out of the city, moving out of apartments, older homes, building these mid-century modern houses. Uh, So in this tour, we'll look at those only in Flossmoor and Olympia Fields. Um, Some great ones. The one we had at the top of the story is a house by Bertrand Goldberg, the designer Mm. of Marina City and River City. Um, There are houses by the Kecks, whom we've discussed. There's an Ed Dart house. There's a house by one of my favorites, Elmer Carlson, who was a, uh, who's not as well known as the people I've just named, but he was this architect in uh, Beverly. There are houses he did in sort of an Art Deco style. There are even more traditional houses. And then he moves into mid-century modern and built this almost sort of spider-shaped house uh, in Olympia Fields that you can go in on this tour. Um, they're doing the South Suburbs this year. They tried during COVID, uh, this is 2023, they tried in 2021 to do a similar tour, or I should say they did a similar tour in on the Fox River, Geneva, St. Charles. Um, and the problem they had is it was COVID. You couldn't go inside. You could just drive by and say, oh, look at that house. Now there are 12 houses on the tour. There are three you cannot go into. There are nine you can go into, including some of those I just mentioned. So you'll actually, it, it, it's a road rally, uh, which you can do, by the way, by bike or by car. Um, but you won't just drive by and say, oh, look at that. That's nice. You'll actually get to go in. Many of these are uh, furnished with mid-century furnishings. I mean, for devotees of this style, this, is, this will probably be a really great day. There are a couple of houses you can't go in. One is a house that you and I have talked about. One of the sellers several years ago, described it to me as an aquarium for people. Oh, yeah. It's an all, oh, gosh, it's so nice. It's surrounded, it's glass on the the main floor, and then it steps down a bluff where it's not all glass, um, designed by Rockwell Deaver, um, and just absolutely wonderful. You can't go in because they're doing some renovations right now, but as the head of the um, Edith Farnsworth house said to me, it's all glass. You can see inside without going in. So that one sort of brings to 10 the ones you'll see the inside of. Really kind of a fun event. And I think I said tickets are $75. And remind me the dates of that again. June 24th. 
Okay, just the one day. Just the one day. They have some other events, a, a sculpture tour at Governor's State oh, cool. of the really fantastic sculpture park there yeah. and some other things. But the 24th is the day of the road rally, you know, because they've got to get people stationed at all the houses and that sort of thing. They have a shuttle. If you take the uh, if you take your bike on Metra, they have a, well, they're calling it a trolley, but a shuttle from the train station to the beginning of the tour. So they, it, I think it would be hard to do for more than one day. Sure. Plus, you want to do it on one day. I've already heard, since the story came out, I've heard from multiple mid-century people who either followed me on Twitter, know me on Facebook, oh, we'll be there. Yeah. So it seems like you know a chance to hobnob with all your friends who like this style. And all the people that are like competing for those mid-century houses that get snapped up so fast. Yeah, exactly. Like know your competition. Because yeah. I feel like, I mean, it, as we, we have discussed many times, you know, there's been a lot of mid-century houses that go on the market and they get snapped up quickly because people yeah. kind of say, this is the kind of house I want. As soon as it's available, I'm going to go get it. I'm going to, I'm on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mid-century modern folks are, it's a thing. It is. And, and red alert Thursday, we, I'm writing up a mid-century modern house coming on the market for the first time ever, original owners um, by, by an architect whose story I'm just completely smitten with. It'll be in the story on Thursday and we'll talk about it here next week. But um, I think those competitive mid-century buyers are, I would imagine we'll jump on that one. They're all over it, I'm sure. All right. So talk to me about uh, a Lincoln Park mansion that, um, well, it lost a few bucks. Tell me about this. <laughs> lost a few <laughs> bucks. Yeah. Like, like $3.6 million. Yeah. This is on Mohawk and I call it the mystery on Mohawk because there are some things we know and there are some things we don't know. And the things we don't know really, I picked at them and I can't get any closer. So this is a big house on Mohawk uh, in Lincoln Park that in June sold for $10 million and then last week sold for $6.37 million or $3.6 million less than it sold for in June. Um, one of the, oh, that is also, by the way, that 6.4, that's less than what it sold for in 2016, which was 8.35 million. Interesting. The June sale was uh, only a transfer in the Cook County records. It was not on real estate. It wasn't a, a house that was marketed. And here's where the mystery starts to descend. At that time, it was sold from one legal liability company to another legal liability company um, with very similar names. The seller was Mohawk Partners. The buyer was Mohawk Partners too. So that's kind of a, a suggestion that, you know, we're really just selling this on paper. Okay. Um, adding to that mystery, my competitor at the Chicago Tribune reported last year that at that time that it was being sold, been reported by Ann Diaz, the, form, the ex-wife of Ken Griffin, as her home address on tax forms and things like that. Her name is not on the house, but my, the Tribune reporter found that um, there are other forms that her name is on. And then the other piece of the mystery is that it sells on paper in June for 10 million and it goes on the market in October for 9.5. So you're already expecting to sell it for less. So the things I don't know are, what happened here? Right. <laughs> My question is, what's going on? Yeah, right. exactly. So I called the agent on the house and she would not talk. And Diaz, of course, is not calling me up to tell me what she's doing with her real estate portfolio. Um, neither is her ex ex-husband, Ken Griffin. For some reason, they don't call me, but it appears that probably an entity that was connected to both of them sold it or transferred ownership to an entity that was connected only to her. 
That's not confirmed. That's how it appears. Um, so it might be that the, that transfer between ex-spouses was valued at $10 million, and then the market valued the house at $6.37 million this uh, last week. Sure. Once again, can't confirm any of that. The numbers I've used, we can confirm. Who was the actual seller? Uh, we don't know for sure. Hmm. And I'll watch to see who the buyer was and see if that person uh, comes across with any information. But um, even so, you know, it's a sale at six point, nearly six point four million. Um, we've seen a couple of really nice sales in Lincoln Park of single family homes. That is a good mystery, though. Mystery on Mohawk, indeed. Yeah. Hmm. Mystery on Mohawk, and it involves that name we have to use once a week, Ken Griffin. I think we can't go two episodes without talking about either Justin Ishbia or Ken Griffin. Yeah. Because just, I mean, that's that's what the news is. That's what's happening. <laughs> All right. Um, talk to me about this house in Winnetka. A lender is set to auction this house. What's what's the deal there? You know, this is a beautiful, very palatial house. They had a very hard time selling it. And uh, at this time, or last spring, they transferred it to their lender who is now auctioning it. That's the short version. Um, the they here is the family of Reza Tulabi. They own the Reza's restaurants. Um, I wrote about it when, when they bought it in 2004. Uh, it's this beautiful, it was by Mayo and Mayo, very, architects of very stately North Shore homes. Um, and it had been in one family's hands for quite a while, needed a lot of rehab. The Tulabi family bought it through a legal entity, but I, I was able to determine that it was theirs. They so they bought it for $3.2 million in 2004. They claim to have put at least two million dollars more into it, which I remembering what it looked like at the time, I would not be at all surprised. Uh, and then in 2021, 2022, they were trying to sell it for less than that total for 3.5 million, um, though they appear to have something like five million into it. And then, according to the public records, they turned it over to their lender in April 2022. Um, which is generally an admission, you know, I can't sell this. Let me give it back to you. You have all the value, you, the lender, have all the value in it. Uh, and then last week it came up for auction. The lender wouldn't talk to me. The Talabis wouldn't talk to me. But the, uh, the auctioneer told me that uh, the minimum bid is about $2.5 million. That's about half the value that they believe is in the house, the purchase and the rehab. So if the minimum bid is about $2.5 million, that's less than they paid for it in 2004, almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago. Uh, we'll see what happens. There are several steps. Um, it may actually result in a, an actual open outcry auction in the great room, in the grand hall of this house, which I would like to attend. It looks like a castle. Yeah. You've seen the pictures. So it's based on um, English castles and... It's this grand facade of brick with windows about two stories high. And you go in through in, inside those windows and you're in this grand hall, two stories high, with balconies all around, giant fireplace, carvings. I mean, it, it looks like you walked into an old castle in England. Um, lots of other rooms that look like that. Big reflecting pool out front with lion statues. It's quite a house built uh, in the 1920s for a guy named Felix Lowy, who was a Col Colgate-Palmolive executive. Colgate-Palmolive was based here, of course, in what's now known as the Palmolive Building. He left uh, to move to Milwaukee and run a company called Holeproof Hosiery, 
Um, and at that time had to sell the house. So, okay. uh, you know, built this palace for himself, built this English castle for himself on Sheridan Road in Winnetka, sold it. So then it passes down through owners to the Talabi family or a legal entity connected with the Talabi family. In 2004 and 18 years later in 2022, when they've been unable to sell it, they hand it to their lender. So we'll see what this auction does. That would be so interesting if you if you do get to go to that auction, as you mentioned. Yeah. It is really gorgeous. There are pictures at chicagobusiness.com and everybody should go check those out because it's it really does look like a castle. And there's some really interesting like ceiling detail that just looks so beautiful and just so old world. And it's, yeah, it's a pretty nice house. Pretty fancy. Yeah. So. Um, I'm honestly a little surprised that it didn't sell in 21 and 22 when people were buying big houses on the North Shore, especially coming out of the city. Uh, I don't know why it didn't sell, um, but it it is a beautiful place. No appetite for castles right then, I guess. Well, no appetite. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Exactly. All right. And then um, lastly, uh, Phil Ponce is selling his Ravenswood home. Tell me about this place. Oh, this place is so interesting. Phil Ponce, who was the host of Chicago Tonight for many years and, and mm-hmm. described himself to me for the story as 99% retired from Channel 11. <laughs> um, but he's been on Chicago television. Uh, since the early 1980s. He and his wife, Anne, bought this house in 2009. A few years later, I wrote about them selling their other house once this one had been rehabbed. Uh, it's a really interesting place. And and as I said in the story, you look at it from the front and you think, oh, what a sweet house. But that's not what brought them in. They looked at it from the back where there was this coach house, a former dairy. Anne is an artist. She was renting studio space nearby. She sees this sort of ramshackle old studio or building and thinks that could be my studio thing goes on the market. They buy it for the back house and then they start a lavish renovation plan. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say lavish because it's not like, it's not that house in Winnetka. It's a very nice house, but it's not, it's not a castle. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a castle. It's a really nice sort of Victorian vernacular house, nice front porch. They did great things to it, uh, to the house. But what's really interesting is that studio building, former dairy, I think it was a dairy at one point. I can't remember what else it was. It was made into a studio, not only for Anne, but for one of their daughters and one of their daughters-in-law. All three do visual arts, photography, painting. And so uh, what Anne described it to me as is a place for a family business. So the, the second floor of this building had been caving in. They take out most of that and have this big two-story studio space but they have sort of a walk around and some living space on a, a partial second floor. And they also, you know, the family is working in there, but the family was also having events in there. Phil Ponce said, you know, birthday parties, everything else. He said, you cannot imagine the number of pinatas we have smashed inside that <laughs> building, which I thought was just incredibly cute. That's fun. Um, really a nice space. They're asking $1.6 million for it. It's got a rooftop. So they added a garage next to the the studio building. It's got a rooftop deck on there. It's got um, really beautiful finishes in a lot of rooms. Just a a really sharp place. They clearly, I have written about um, houses of some of the other ponds, the sons of this couple, Mm -hmm. as well as their house. That's a family with some taste, right? man. They've had some nice houses and done really good things to them. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember you writing about uh, some of the other houses in the family Yeah, uh, and discussing them. So yeah, for sure. The family that has good taste together um, 
all goes into broadcasting together. You know, two of their sons. That's are right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. TV people is still in Chicago. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? You you kind of hinted at some some of the stories you'll be working on, but what else? Well, one is there's another property going up for auction. This is kind of what's going on now. You know, where is the market? What is my price? Mm-hmm. And this is a house with all kinds of layers of history, and it's going up for auction. And that's one of the main ones I'm going to work on. Great. All right. Well, I will meet you right back here this time next week and we will talk all about it. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, plant-based meat is predicted to rebound as it gets both less expensive and more delicious. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard about here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com slash subscribe and using code DAILYGIST, all one word, at checkout to redeem this offer. So be sure to visit chicagobusiness.com slash subscribe and enter code DAILYGIST to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. The parent company of BMO, Chicago's second largest bank, appears to be readying layoffs, potentially including some of its presence here. Crane's Steve Daniels reported that executives at Toronto-based BMO Financial Group told analysts last week that revenue is failing to keep up with expenses, an issue the company expects to address via cost-cutting. In the fiscal second quarter, which ended April 30th, BMO's efficiency ratio, or the non-interest expenses divided by revenue, reflected costs that on an annualized basis were about $1.2 billion above where they would need to be to achieve the company's 55% ratio target. Daniels noted that the gauge is expected to improve some over the rest of 2023 as the bank sees benefits from cost reductions that it plans tied to its recent acquisition of San Francisco-based Bank of the West. But Daniels also noted that the banking environment of the past few months, which means higher funding costs for banks, is weighing on revenues in ways the cost plans in the merger don't address. Daniels noted in reporting that the need for cost reductions in what looks like the hundreds of millions is almost sure to mean layoffs, given that worker compensation is nearly every major corporation's biggest cost center. And recent messaging from the company's CFO about cuts on the entire expense base implies that Chicago could be part of that. BMO employs about 7,000 people in the Chicago area and more than 56,000 people in Canada and the U.S. overall. Daniels further noted that BMO is contending with the same pressures other banks are feeling as depositors search for alternatives paying higher interest rates. That forces banks either to increase their rates to keep customers or lose deposits needed to fund their lending operations. Without Bank of the West, which BMO acquired on February 1st, U.S. deposits dropped slightly to $115 billion, down from $117 billion at the end of January. That according to investor disclosures. 
Daniels further noted that during its recent investor call, BMO also confirmed something Cranes had recently reported, that it will have to shell out about $300 million over two years starting in 2024 to help shore up the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation's fund to cover insured deposits when banks fail. That fund has been badly depleted by the recent failures of Silicon Valley Bank and New York-based Signature Bank. Crane's Albi Galoon reported that two local developers are moving forward with plans for a nearly 300-unit multifamily housing project near the Westfield Old Orchard Shopping Mall in Skokie, an area that could emerge as an apartment hotspot over the next few years. Galoon noted that a joint venture between Chicago-based Tucker Development and Mount Prospect-based Wingspan Development Group has acquired a site on Old Orchard Road just west of the Edens Expressway, where it plans 249 apartments and 49 rental townhomes. The Village of Skokie approved zoning for the luxury development in December. Tucker and Wingspan are seeking construction financing for the project and aim to break ground by the end of the year, according to Aaron Tucker, Tucker's president and chief investment officer who spoke with Cranes. But Galoo noted that they may have some competition. The owner of Westfield Old Orchard, on Old Orchard Road just east of the Edens, plans to tear down the vacant Bloomingdale's department store at the mall and build about 360 apartments in its place. And the owner of the Old Orchard Towers office complex just east of the Tucker Wingspan site recently put the property up for sale, marketing it as a teardown candidate to apartment developers. Under one potential plan for the site, a developer could build nearly 600 units there, according to a marketing brochure for the property. Galoon further reported that Tucker and Wingspan are pushing ahead amid a strong suburban apartment market. The median net suburban rent rose 5.9% in the first quarter from a year prior, according to Integra Realty Resources, an appraisal and consulting firm. But he also noted that they face headwinds in the real estate financing market. Rising interest rates have pushed up borrowing costs and lenders have become more conservative, making it harder for developers to finance new projects. Galoon noted that they'll demolish a 130,000-square-foot office campus on the site occupied by Construction Technology Laboratories, or CTL Group, a former subsidiary of the Portland Cement Association, or PCA, that was acquired in 2019. The PCA unit built the campus in 1948. Galoon reported that Tucker and Wingspan plan to build a four-story multi-wing apartment building fronting Old Orchard Road that will include studio one, two, and three bedroom units. They would build the three-story townhomes with three and four bedroom units in the back. Arlington Heights-based HKM Architects and Planners designed the Skokie project. And Galoon reported that Tucker is trying to get the Skokie project going as it wraps up another big project in Lincolnwood. On Saturday, the first residents moved into District 1860, a mixed-use development with 299 apartments that Tucker is building on the former site of the Purple Hotel. Crane's John Pletz reported that logistics software maker Project 44, one of Chicago's fastest-growing startups, has laid off about 10% of its staff. 
P44 cut 130 jobs, including contractors, from a staff of about 1,050 people. Kletz noted in reporting that the cutbacks come amid a slowdown in the shipping industry, which surged during earlier phases of the COVID-19 pandemic as e-commerce soared and supply chain issues sent companies scrambling for inventory. Kletz also noted that amid concerns about a recession, as well as rising inflation and borrowing costs, companies are also taking longer to make purchasing decisions. CEO Jet McCandless told Cranes that P44 is growing at a healthy pace despite double-digit shipment declines at some of the industry's largest trucking companies. Large companies use P44 to track shipments in transit through a software platform that includes more than 200,000 trucking, rail, ocean, and air carriers. Plutz reported that P44 is one of a dozen or so Chicago-area unicorns, or venture-backed private companies valued at more than $1 billion. It was valued, in fact, at $2.7 billion last fall when it raised $80 million. Plutz also noted that private company valuations have been under pressure following the sharp decline in tech stocks last year. Despite a recent rebound fueled in part by interest in AI, the Nasdaq is still down 20% from its peak in late 2021. P44 is one of several late-stage Chicago tech companies that have trimmed staff since then, including legal software maker Relativity, financial tech firm Amount, and consumer entertainment app Cameo. Bloomberg reported that a maker of veggie burgers and plant-based meat products backed by a multinational joint venture expects demand for meat alternatives to resume its exponential growth as food inflation eases and products improve. Bloomberg reported that John Pinto, CEO of Chicago-based Plant Plus Foods, said his company sees global sales of plant-based foods surging to $30 billion in a decade, after stalling in recent years around the $2 billion mark. His company is a joint venture between Brazilian meat giant Marfrig Global Foods and U.S. agribusiness Archer Daniels Midland. Bloomberg noted in reporting that plant-based burgers, sausages, and other products are struggling to compete with the real thing due to their higher cost and waning consumer curiosity. To reignite growth, companies will have to increase their products' variety, taste, and nutrition, Pinto told Bloomberg. They'll also need to lower costs and sell less expensive products, he added. In an interview, he said, quote, plant-based consumption has slowed down due to the macroeconomic scenario and all the supply chain hurdles that all the food sector faced over the past years. He went on to say, quote, we see this moment as a chapter on the sector's expansion process. Bloomberg noted that plant-based foods that mimic the taste and feel of meat have in particular lost ground after an initial period of rapid growth. U.S. sales of refrigerated alternative meat products slumped 18% in dollar terms and 20% by volume during the 52 weeks ending May 21st. That according to data from Circana, which tracks such market data. Euromonitor, another provider of market data, projects global sales of meat and seafood alternatives reaching $11 billion by 2027. But Bloomberg noted that Pinto said some competitors haven't been able to keep investing amid the recent slump and may be forced out of the market. JBS, the world's largest meat supplier, last year announced that it was discontinuing operations at Plantera, its U.S. plant-based business, amid softening demand. However, the company is still producing plant-based meat in Brazil and in Europe.
Nonetheless, Pinto told Bloomberg, companies that have made a, quote, long-term bet on plant-based will keep investing to develop the category. His Plant Plus Foods is 70% owned by the crop trader ADM, while Brazil's Marfrig, the world's second largest beef producer, owns the rest. The company owns the Hillary's brand, which makes veggie burgers, and Canada's Soul Cuisine, which makes plant-based versions of burgers, meatballs, chicken, and fish. Bloomberg noted in reporting that in Brazil, where the company supplies plant-based burgers to Burger King, Plant Plus announced earlier this month a partnership with BRF, one of the nation's biggest food companies, to boost its portfolio of products to almost 30 items, including frozen vegetables and veggie meals in addition to meat alternatives. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.